and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning. I'm so happy to be with you all. I uh, have enjoyed our weekend together. Many of you were with us yesterday at Estes Park. We had the family fun day and got to spend some time in the Word together, playing together, growing together. And so I got to know many of you. Um, I, I know Hal and Annie because I'm a professor at the seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And Annie was in my class last semester and Hal's in my class this semester. And uh, I've also become dear friend of somebody that many of you know, Frank Trimble. And so through them, I've heard a lot about your church uh, for a long time now. So I've been thinking of you and praying for you uh, from Texas. And so now I'm glad to actually get to be in the room with you all, worshiping together this morning. And I'll be preaching this morning from Psalm 78. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there and we'll walk through the passage that we just heard. Uh, I am in Fort Worth, Texas. I grew up in Texas. I grew up in a little town just north of Dallas called Louisville. You've probably never heard of it. Our high school mascot is the Fighting Farmers. And uh, if that tells you anything about the town I grew up in. Uh, so we grew up fighting farmers, Louisville, Texas. And now I, I wear boots pretty much every day. But when I was a kid, I, I only wore boots once a year. And that was when once a year my parents would take us to another little town in Texas called Mesquite, Texas. And we'd go to the Mesquite Rodeo. Anybody here ever gone to a rodeo before? Well, this was smaller than the one you went to. Uh, I guarantee it. I'm, I've been, I pastored a church in Houston for 10 years. They got the big rodeo in Houston. Now we're in Fort Worth. They got these big rodeos in Fort Worth, but, uh, the Mesquite Rodeo is a small rodeo. But the reason we love to go every year, my brother and I, my older brother, is because at the end of the rodeo, they get all the fifth grade and under kids in the arena, in the dirt. They line us up shoulder to shoulder and they get a little cow and they tie a ribbon to the tail of the cow. And then they shoot a gun in the air, because back then no one cared about shooting guns around kids. And, and they shoot a gun in the air, the cow would take off running, and all the kids would take off running. And whichever kid could catch the ribbon first, they, they won a prize. And so every year, my brother and I would get our boots, we'd go to the rodeo, we'd line up, they shoot the gun, and every year we, we would lose. And so when I was in third grade, and my brother was in fifth grade, we're going to the rodeo, I get my boots on, and I'm walking by my brother's bedroom, and I see he's putting on his tennis shoes, his Air Jordans. And we grew up in the 80s where you thought shoes made a big difference. You know, we were convinced if you had the right shoes, you'd be able to dunk a basketball. And, and I said, why aren't you putting on your boots? We're going to the rodeo. And he looked at me, he said, this is my last year, I'm catching that cow. He said, I've been wearing the wrong shoes, the wrong footwear. You can't catch a cow wearing boots. So he put on his Air Jordans, his tennis shoes. We go to the rodeo, line up shoulder to shoulder. They shoot the gun. I start running in my boots. I slip face in the dirt right away. And I look up through the cloud of the dust of the dirt, and I can see the cow way out there. I see my brother and some other kids toward the front. And sure enough, my brother, wearing his Air Jordans on his last year to get to do this, he caught the cow, got the ribbon, and he won for first place a $25 gift certificate to El Chico Tex-Mex restaurant. <laughs> so we went out to dinner that night. And back then, $25, that, that was like two meals for your whole family. So we went out to dinner, all four of us, and he paid for dinner in fifth grade and still had leftover from his gift certificate. 
But I, I, I want to put that picture on your minds as we look at Psalm 78. I want you to picture all those kids lined up, the gun shoots, and they're running full speed ahead as fast as they can, their heart pounding in their chest, all staring at that cow, chasing that ribbon, dreaming about El Chico fajitas later that night, and that passion, that zeal of them pursuing and chasing that thing because the truth of it is, and we know this from experience, we know this from Scripture, we know this from our own families, the young generation in our nation right now the gun has already been fired. They are running after something right now. With all of their might, with all of their heart, with all of their dreams and passions and goals, with great zeal, that generation is pursuing something. They are chasing something, their heart pounding as fast as they can. And the world is giving them countless things to chase after, all of which will put them on a path toward destruction. And there's only one thing they can pursue that will bring them life and hope and joy and grace and a relationship with God. And in Psalm 78, what we find is a congregation of God's people, not much different than the church family here. We find a congregation of God's people that have a great passion to make sure that that next generation, out of all the things they could be chasing, that they'll be chasing after the Lord. So with that in mind, let's read again. Just uh, We read 1 through 8 earlier, but let's just look at verses 4 through 8 in Psalm 78. Starting in verse 4, they're, they're talking about the things they've heard from their fathers, the things they know about God, the things they've heard about God. And in verse 4, they said, We will not hide them from their children, but we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and he appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. This is, again, a congregation of God's people who says we are going to proclaim to the next generation all that we know about God so that they would then hope in God. This is the longest historical psalm in the Old Testament. We're not going to read every verse, but it's a long psalm. And this psalm actually does what these verses says. These verses says we're going to proclaim all about who God is and what he's done, his glorious deeds and his might. And for the rest of this chapter, for all of these verses, Asaph is writing about who God is and what he's done. He's writing stories about his glorious deeds and his might. He's reminding them of their history with God. We, we talked yesterday at Esses Park about sharing testimonies with our kids and our grandkids and making sure they know the stories of God's faithfulness. And that's what Psalm 78 does. It tells all these stories of even in our rebellion, look how merciful God was. Even in our rebellion, look how faithful God was. Look how he provided. Look how he delivered. Look how good God is. Let's make sure we tell all these testimonies, all these stories to the next generation. In fact, in these opening verses, we have several generations. In verse four, they say, we're not gonna hide them from their children. But right before that, they said, these are the things we heard from our fathers. So it went from our fathers to us. We're gonna tell them to our children. Then they say, even the generation to come, even the children yet unborn, and those children yet unborn are going to rise up and tell them to their children. This is reproducing discipleship. This is generation to generation. And that's what we see in Psalm 78 is a heart to pass our faith down from one generation to the next. When was the last time you had the chance to pass your faith on to someone else? It reminds me of a verse in 2 Timothy 2.2 that maybe some of you are familiar with. Paul is writing to Timothy. 
And Paul tells Timothy, what you've heard from me, pass on to faithful men or entrust with faithful men who will teach others. So Paul says in Galatians 1, he, he heard the gospel from Jesus, Jesus to Paul, Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, faithful men to others. We have five generations of discipleship taking place there. That's that reproducing discipleship from one generation to another. And that's what we see in these opening verses of Psalm 78, multiple generations present. So let's pray together and then let's look at how we can live out this passion of passing down our faith to the next generation. Father, I do want to lift up this church family to you and I thank you for their heart for the next generation. I thank you for those who have already found opportunities to serve with the babies and the preschoolers and the, the children of the church, the youth, Lord, those who have spent themselves week after week, some of for years, Lord, to disciple the next generation, to equip parents to disciple their children, Lord. I praise you for the parents and the grandparents here who have already found those opportunities to point their kids and their grandkids to you, Jesus Christ, to disciple them, to pray over them, to share testimonies with them, Lord. And I pray that we would never grow apathetic in that calling or our hearts would never grow cold in that calling, Lord. But I pray that even today you would rekindle that passion within us, that desire within us, Lord, to pass our faith down to the next generation. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This time next year, many of you will be watching the Olympics. We got the Olympics coming next year. My wife loves the Olympics, so we always watch the Olympics. Her favorite is the uh, gymnastics. My favorite is the track and field. I love track and field because you get the fastest people in the whole world together in one place, and and they just race each other, and I love that. And, And one of the events in the track and field is the relay. Have you ever seen the relay? They have a little relay baton, and you got four people either doing 100 meters or four people doing 400 meters. And so the first one will run for a while, and then he'll pass the baton to the next guy, and the next guy does this little move, and he grabs the baton, and then he runs, and he passes it. Well, there's a lot of ways you can mess up passing the baton to the next guy. In fact, the U.S. men in recent history have been terrible at the relay race. Let me tell you, here, here's the recent history of the U.S. men in, in the relay race. In 2008, in the Olympics, we dropped the baton during the exchange and were disqualified. In 2009, in the World Championships, we exchanged the baton too early and were disqualified. In 2011, we collided with another runner and we didn't finish. In 2015, we exchanged the baton too late and we were disqualified. In fact, going into the 2021 Olympics, our last Olympics, We had messed up the exchange in seven of the previous 11 Olympic races and world championship races, and we had been disqualified in six of those 11 races. So going into 2001, everybody's thinking, finally, we'll probably get this right. Surely, we won't mess it up again, but we did. In 2021, in the Olympics, during the 100-meter Olympic relay, the U.S. men, two runners, bumped into each other. They weren't disqualified, but they finished sixth and didn't advance to the next round. You see, we all had this desire to pass our faith down to the next generation. We had this desire to pass our faith on to somebody. And there's so many different ways we can drop the baton. We can mess up that exchange. We, we can do it in a way that the faith is not transmitted to the next generation. So in Psalm 78, as we're walking through this passage today, I want to give us three ways that we can pass that baton of faith down to the next generation. Three ways that we as Christians can leave a legacy of faith that will outlive and outlast us. The first thing we see in verse four is that we can leave a legacy of faith by declaring to the coming generation 
who God is and what he's done. Who God is and what he's done. Look at verse 4. We will not hide them, them being the things that we have heard and known about God. We will not hide them from their children. But we will tell to the coming generation. What are we going to proclaim to the coming generation? The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. The deeds that he's done, the wonders that he has done, his might, his very character and nature. We're going to proclaim who he is and what he's done. How intentional are we in in telling the next generation who God is and what he's not? Not just teaching Bible stories, but truly teaching the very character and nature of God, his his deeds, his attributes. Do we teach them that he is omnipresent? Do we teach them that he he is forgiving and faithful, that he is all-knowing and all-powerful, that he is gracious and merciful? Do we teach them that he is the living water and the bread of life? Do we teach them that he is the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, and the King of Kings? Are we constantly pointing them to Jesus Christ? One of the ways we leave this legacy of faith is simply by pointing them to a loving, holy, all-powerful, merciful creator, our protector, our refuge, our redeemer, our savior. Can you imagine in this nation, the next generation growing up and truly knowing Jesus Christ? in relationship with him, not just knowing stories from the Bible or things about God, but truly knowing him. Paul knew a lot about Jesus when he was persecuting the church. He used what he knew about Jesus and what the early church was saying about Jesus to persecute the church. And yet when Jesus came to him and opened his eyes, in that moment, Paul knew Jesus. Not just knew things about him, but knew Jesus. Later, Paul would tell the church, I count all things lost for the sake of just knowing Jesus Christ. Is that part of our prayer for the next generation that we would see the next generation simply know who God is and what he's done? We talked yesterday about one of the ways we can do this is by sharing testimonies. And we asked the question, parents, grandparents, do your children and do your grandchildren know your testimony? Have you ever just shared that with them? Have you ever just sat down at the dinner table or at bedtime, you're getting them into bed or driving in the car and said, have I ever told you about my life before Christ? Have I ever told you about the people who first shared the gospel with me? Have I ever told you about the time that I actually turned from my sin and put my faith in Jesus? Have I ever told you about the day of my salvation? Have I ever told you about what God's been doing since then? Are we sharing these testimonies, passing it on? Of course, one of the most powerful ways We can tell the next generation who God is and what he's done is simply by sharing the gospel, the good news. Have we shared the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we told them the whole story, starting in the beginning and just walking them through scripture and how everything is pointing to Jesus? We could tell them that there is one true living God, one true living God, and that one God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures, through his word, through the Bible. And in the Bible, we read that the one true living God created everything and holds everything together. He made everything that there is. And he also made people. He made them male and female in his own image. And he put the first two people he made, Adam and Eve, in a garden. And he told them they could eat of any fruit in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will die. 
and Adam and Eve, the, the first married couple, the first family, God's creation right there in the garden. They, they were naked, but they felt no shame. They had God's truth in their hand. But the serpent came to them and told them a lie. Serpent said, if you eat the fruit, you won't die. And they had the truth of God in one hand and the lie of the enemy in the other hand. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie of Satan. And Eve took the fruit and she ate it. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it also. And immediately sin entered the world. Sin entered that first family, that first home. And with it came shame. Just like when we sin, we try to cover our shame. Adam and Eve, they took fig leaves and tried to cover their shame, cover their nakedness. And just like when we sin, we have a fear and we're afraid and we hide from God. Adam and Eve, as they sinned, they hid from God. But even as they were hiding from God, God was seeking after them. God pursued them and God called them by name. And even though there's consequences for their sin in Genesis 3, there's also a promise, a promise of redemption. God promised that one day one would come through the seed of the woman, through the descendants of the woman who would crush Satan. And as we're reading that scripture after that point, we're waiting for the one who would crush Satan. And at the close of that chapter, God does what we can't do. God covered their shame. They try to cover their shame with fig leaves. God takes the skin of an animal and covers their shame, foreshadowing that we're going to need a sacrifice provided by God that would cover our shame. And so now we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice who's going to cover our shame. Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, but Cain didn't crush Satan. Cain crushed Abel, and Abel died, and God gave him another son named Seth. And through the lineage of Seth came a man named Noah. During the times of Noah, mankind were rebellious and sinful, uh, rebellious against God. And so the wages of sin is always death, and so God sent the flood. But he's also merciful. And so he preserved Noah and his family, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their uh, wives as well. Two generations through the ark, he saved them. And after the flood, they started to multiply. But instead of filling the earth, mankind stayed in one spot. In Genesis 11, we read that they were trying to build a tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. They had one nation, one language. But as they were making that name for themselves, God came and confused their languages. So now we have thousands of nations and thousands of languages. And in Genesis 12, the very next chapter, God chose one man from one of those nations, Abram, and said, through you, one will come who will bless all of these nations. So now we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice that's going to cover our shame. We're waiting for the one who's going to come and bless all nations. Abraham had a son named Isaac. And God told Abraham to take Isaac and lay him on the altar as a sacrifice. So they went to the mountain and he told his servants, you stay here at the bottom of the mountain. Me and the boy are going to go up and worship and we will return. As they were going up the mountain, Isaac said, I see the fire, I see the knife, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. He laid Isaac on the altar, but the angel of the Lord told him not to harm the boy, to take him off the altar and look in the thicket. There was a ram caught in the thicket. And he placed that substitutionary sacrifice on the altar in the place of Isaac's life. And the death of that ram meant the life for Isaac. And so now we're waiting for the one who's going to crush Satan. We're waiting for the sacrifice that's going to cover our shame. We're waiting for the one who's going to bless all nations. We're waiting for the lamb of God that God will provide. And we're waiting for the substitutionary sacrifice will take our place on the altar. And his death will mean our life. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And God changed his name to Israel so that his family is called the nation of Israel. The Israelites. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph. And through Joseph, God moved the whole nation of Israel to Egypt. And after some time, they became slaves in Egypt. They were slaves for 430 years. And then God raised up a man named Moses and used Moses to lead them out of slavery. He sent 10 plagues. The 10th plague was the plague of the Passover lamb. And God told his people, take a spotless, pure lamb. 
and sacrifice and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of the Lord sees the blood of the Passover of the lamb, it will pass over your house. The wrath of God will pass over you. We're waiting for that sinless, spotless, blameless Passover lamb of God whose blood would cover us so that the wrath of God would pass over our sin. Moses led them out of slavery. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. After Moses died, God raised up a man named Joshua to lead them to the land he had promised them, the promised land. During the time they were in the promised land, they were ruled by judges, but after some time, they rejected God as king, and they said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a human king. So God gave them kings. He gave them Saul and David and Solomon and other kings. And during the time of the kings, we had prophets, and these prophets gave us more promises about the one who was going to come. They said the one who would come would come through the family of David and would be king forever. The one who would come would be born of a virgin, be born in Bethlehem. The one who would come would be a suffering servant. He'd be bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions and by his wounds we would be healed after 400 years after the close of the old testament jesus christ was born the eternal son of god the word of god he took on flesh he dwelt among us he was born of a virgin he was born in bethlehem when he started his ministry his cousin john the baptist pointed at him in front of a crowd and said behold the lamb of god who comes to take away the sins of the world You see, he is the one who came to crush Satan. He is the sacrifice who covers our shame. He is the one who came to bless all nations. He's the lamb of God that God provided. He's a substitutionary sacrifice who takes our place on the cross, takes our sin on himself, and his death means our life. He is that sinless, spotless, blameless, perfect Passover lamb of God whose blood covers our sin, covers our shame, so that the wrath of God can pass over us. He is the one who came through the lineage of David to be king forever. He is a suffering servant who is crushed for our iniquities, bruised for our our transgressions, and by his wounds, we were healed. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On the third day, he rose again. And now the Bible teaches, because of his sacrifice, taking our place, that if we would put our faith in Jesus, he would forgive us of our sins, He would count our faith as righteousness. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We would be saved, we'd be forgiven, we'd be adopted into the family of God, we'd become a new creation with a new heart, we'd be sealed with the Holy Spirit, promise eternal life in heaven with Jesus. This is a gospel. The next generation right now is desperate for the gospel. We are saturated in our culture right now with what we would call bad news, terrible news, heartbreaking news. And we are called to be a church passionate, zealous to proclaim the good news to the next generation. The second way that we can leave a legacy of faith in Psalm 78 is we leave a legacy of faith by teaching specifically the word of God to the coming generation. They need the word of God. Look at verse five. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and teach them to their children. So we established a testimony. The, the word there for testimony is Torah. It means law. It means teaching. He's given us a teaching to pass down the next generation. And we had that teaching in the Bible today. So when did he command us to do this? It says he commanded fathers to teach their children. When did he do that? He did it in Genesis 18, he did it in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 32, he did it in Ephesians 6. Woven throughout scripture is this command of God for parents to bring the Bible, the word of God, into the home and teach that to their children. We looked at one of these examples yesterday, Deuteronomy 6, and many of you are very very familiar with this passage. 
But in Deuteronomy 6, parents are commanded to teach the word of God diligently to their children in their home. And we looked at that phrase yesterday, to teach diligently. One author says the best way of understanding the Hebrew there is the idea of chiseling something into stone. Parents are commanded to chisel the word of God into the hearts of their children to impress the word of God like you're impressing something into wet cement that could harden and be there forever. We're gonna impress the word of God into the hearts of the next generation. And this is a command for parents. And so there's a specific application here for parents and grandparents. And that is what we often call family worship or family discipleship. Family worship takes place when a Christian family and the members of their household come together to teach and enjoy the word of God, to pray with and for one another, and to offer praises to the Lord. These are the elements that families are commanded to bring into the front doors of the home. And I know that that can be challenging for us. You know, one of the things we talked about yesterday is how so many of the things we do on Sunday morning just seem to fit on Sunday morning. It feels so natural to gather here on Sunday morning and sing songs of praise and worship through song. It seems so natural to open up the Bible and teach and preach. It seems so natural to share testimonies with one another, to share prayer requests and praises and pray together. And then we get home on Sunday night and we struggle so much trying to figure out how to bring those same rhythms into the home. To even just pray with our spouse. When was the last time you prayed with your spouse besides just a mealtime prayer? When was the last time you prayed with your children, your grandchildren? When was the last time you opened the word of God in your home and taught it to one another and joined the word of God? We are desperate for the Bible. We are desperate for this teaching. And there is a unique application here for parents and grandparents toward family worship. But again, Psalm 78 is not just parents. Psalm 78 is the entire congregation of God's people. And the entire congregation is passionate in verse 6 to see the next generation knowing the word of God. The children yet unborn, so they would arise and tell them to their children. They're thinking two generations down the road. When was the last time we thought about kids who aren't even born and whether or not they'll know God? When was the last time we thought about, okay, after I'm gone, what kind of legacy of faith will I have left? Who did I pass that baton of faith to? How many people did I pass it? Did I pass it in such a way that they now know how to pass it to the next generation? Are we doing that reproducing discipleship? That's the heart of this congregation in Psalm 78. They're saying, we're not gonna be here forever. And when we're gone, we want there still to be a congregation of God's people. I I know all of us would say we still want there to be a church here for generations to come. This is not just a church for us. It's a church for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Five generations down the road right here in this city, we want this church to be here and to be filled with families worshiping the Lord who know Jesus Christ. And so it starts now. It starts with this generation. And it requires everyone. Every member of the church to say, I'm part of that. We're all running the race. We're all passing that baton. We're gonna find someone. Maybe there's someone right now on your heart say, that's one person I'm gonna pass the baton of faith to. I I grew up in the church. My dad's a pastor. My mom was a minister of music. And so I heard the gospel a lot. I had a lot of faithful mentors and people pouring the gospel into me. And yet for 18 years, I rebelled against it. Uh, I went to church, loved going to church. My friends were there. But outside of church, I lived a very sinful life, selfish life, lived life for myself, very worldly. But when I graduated high school, I was 18 years old, about to go to college, God saved me. 
And it was one of the most sweetest experiences of my life. He, he just confronted me with my sin, showed me that he didn't know me. Immediately, I desired to know him, longed to know him. I gave my life to Christ, and he saved me. And, and later that year, my freshman year in college, I started thinking about something my youth pastor had told me. He, he told me, you always need someone discipling you. So I started praying about that. And I made a list of six godly men from our church that I thought could pass that baton of faith to me, that could disciple me well. And I prayed about that for six weeks. And then I called one of those people. And I said, hey, I would like you to pray about discipling me. God's laid you on my heart. I've been praying about this for a while. Would you consider just take some time, pray about this? And here's what he told me. He goes, Jonathan, I don't even have to pray about it. My answer is yes, because for the last three months, I've been praying that God would send me a younger person that I could disciple. Do we do that still? Do we pray, God, send me someone to disciple? Send me someone that I can pass my faith on? Do we go to the leaders of the church who are working with the preschoolers and the children and youth and we say, hey, who can I disciple? Who who needs a mentor? Who who needs someone to pass that faith to them? Who needs prayer? How can I be a part of that? We are called to bring the word of God to that generation so they would know them. Every day there's 34 new video games released. Every year, there's 34,000 new young adult books that are published. More than 2,000 apps are published on Android and Apple phones every single day. Every day, there's 3.7 million new YouTube videos. And every single day on Instagram, there are 95 million new pictures and videos. The next generation is saturated with messages, with teachings, with influences the people uploading the things literally call themselves influencers do they get the word of god that's the one thing they need the word of god the missionary david livingston 19th century went through africa when he started his trek he had these three different backpacks and in the three different backpacks he had 73 different books and they weighed nearly 400 pounds. And he starts this trek through Africa carrying all these books. And after several miles, they were too heavy. So he took a book out. And after some more miles, he took a few more books out. And little by little, he just took books out of his backpack to, to lighten the load. And it is said that when he finished his journey, he only had one book left. And it was the Bible. Absolutely. Because that's the one thing we need. That's the one thing the next generation needs. They're, they are saturated with videos and music and shows and ads and all these influences and messages coming at them. The average teenager and middle schooler this generation and this nation gets 3,000 hours a year on their screens. And at the best, they're getting maybe 100 hours a year with the church family at the church house. We have to find a way to bring the word of God into the home. We have to find a way to bring the word of God to them. We have to find a way to pass our baton of faith to the next generation. They need God's word. It's the one thing they need. We need to bring them the Bible. And finally, the last way that we can leave a legacy of faith in this passage is we can leave a legacy of faith by leading the coming generation to set their hope in God. Look at verse seven. This is... 
the prayer of all this. This is why we want to do this. All these other verses, this commitment, this passion to pass the baton of faith. Why do we want to do that? What's the prayer? What's the hope? This is it in verse 7. There's three things we're praying to see in the next generation. Number one, we're praying that they should set their hope in God. Number two, that they would not forget the works of God. And number three, that they would keep his commandments. Can you imagine if 30 years from now we're able to talk about the coming generation right now and say, I'll tell you three things about that generation. They set their hope in God. They have not forgotten his works and they keep his commandments. They're obedient to the word of God. Wouldn't that be amazing to say that? What a contrast to verse eight. In verse eight, we're reminded of a previous generation. They're saying we don't want them to be like that previous generation, their fathers or ancestors. They were a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And we're praying something different for them. The purpose of us being all in, zealous, passionate about passing our faith down the next generation is so they would set their hope in God. And let me tell you, part of my job at the seminary is I work with a lot of PhD students doing a lot of research and we have to read all the researchers out there. And here's what we see. Every piece of research right now focused on the next generation in this country, it tells us one thing. They are not headed toward verse 7. They are not on a trajectory toward hoping in God and following God. In fact, what it it tells us right now is that the young generation is headed toward Judges 2.10. Judges 2.10 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in the Bible. Judges 2.10 tells us that after Joshua, the leader of God's people who brought him into the promised land, after Joshua and all the elders with him died and that generation was gone, Judges 2.10 says, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. And right now, every piece of research tells us that's what we'll be saying in 20 years here. After we've gone and we're home with the Lord, there'll be a generation here in this nation who does not know the Lord. But God is able to change all of that. God is able to bring revival God can turn the tide. God can save that generation. God can use you and this church to pass your faith to that next generation. God can raise up a generation that sets their hope in God. And let me tell you, that next generation, they're going to hope in something. In fact, I would even say they already have. I got three kids. I think about this all the time. I'm telling you, from a very young age, they put their hope in something. And if it's not God, whatever else it is, it leads them on a path to destruction. Our prayers, they would set their hope in God, not forget his works and keep his commandments. God can do it. I think it's easy right now to see what's going on in our culture and and just be discouraged, kind of walk around. I, I see Christians all the time just walk around with their head down, defeated, kicking the dirt like all is lost. We have the spirit of Jesus Christ within us. He rose from the dead. He says nothing is impossible for him. He's a God who moves mountains. Why do we walk around defeated? We should walk around victorious, hopeful, knowing that the Lord is able to turn the tide. He's able to bring revival. He's able to save the next generation. And if we don't walk around defeated, a lot of times we see what's going on in the culture. We see what's going on even with the younger generation. And we just walk around complaining about it, criticizing it. That doesn't seem to be the call either. What what if we walked around just... Hopeful. What if we walked around proclaiming the gospel? What if we walked around teaching the word of God to the next generation, sharing testimonies? What if we committed to, to be prayer warriors for that next generation? When's the last time you went in your prayer closet, just fell on your face, 
and truly entreated the Lord for that next generation? When was the last time you saw some disheartening news and instead of complaining about it, criticizing it, or feeling discouraged or fearful, you, you, you took that and just went to prayer? I think one of the needs that we see in this passage is not just a generation teaching the word of God and sharing testimonies, proclaiming the gospel to the next generation. One of my hopes would be to see a generation of churches that are truly prayer warriors for the next generation. There's an example of this in Colossians 4. Uh, Paul's writing the church there and at the end of Colossians in chapter four, he's just greeting some people and he's giving greetings from people and he gives a greeting from a man named Epaphras. And this is a man they all know, they all love. He was the first one to share the gospel with that church, even before Paul. And he tells them something about Epaphras. He says, he has been praying for you. He says that to the church. But he doesn't just say he's been praying for you. You know what he says? He says, he has been wrestling for you or fighting for you in prayer. You know, if someone comes up to me and they say, Jonathan, I just want you to know I've been praying for you. That means a lot. I need all the prayer I could get. But if someone came up to me and said, Jonathan, I want you to know I've been wrestling for you. I've been fighting for you in prayer. That hits a little different, doesn't it? Parents, maybe some of us, this is a day we need to re-up that commitment to say, no one will pray for my kids more than me. No one will fight for my kids in prayer more than me. Grandparents, when was the last time you said, I will be the biggest prayer warrior for my grandkids? There won't be a day that goes by that you won't find me in my prayer closet on my knees before the Lord praying for my grandkids. What about those who have prodigals in their home? You have kids, grandkids who have been drifting from the Lord right now. Maybe today's that day we re-up that commitment to say, we're not gonna give up on them and we're not gonna stop praying for them. In fact, starting today, we're gonna recommit to be the biggest prayer warriors for that generation and that God would bring those prodigals home. I'm praying for my kids' marriage. I'm praying for my grandkids and their marriage. Some of you, you work with young people here at the church. You know the struggles they have. You know the temptations they're battling. Have we committed to be prayer warriors for for them? When was the last time you went to one of the leaders here at the church that works with the young people and said, hey, tell me how I can pray. I want to commit right now to be a prayer warrior for the kids in our church, for the youth in our church. You give me a list. You text me every time there's a prayer request. I'm your guy. I'm your lady. I'm going to stop everything I'm doing and I'm going to pray for that next generation. We're not going to lose them. I'm going to pray against Judges 2.10 and I'm going to pray for Psalm 78.7. We want to see a generation who hopes in God. Parents, we need you praying with your kids. I don't care how awkward or tough it is. Grandparents, we need you praying with them. We talked yesterday about the, the spiritual role that empty nesters and grandparents continue to play in the lives of their adult children and grandchildren. We see it all through scripture. We talked about the awesome privilege and joy of parents praying with their kids, passing that faith down to the next generation. I know many of you, this is already a passion of yours. Many of you, this is on your heart. Some of you have spent the last 60 years doing the very things we just talked about, passing that baton of faith, praying for them, teaching them the word of God week after week after week. Some of you have found ways to bring these rhythms into the home and you're doing this with your family and with your kids and your grandkids. And hopefully today is just an encouragement to keep running that race, keep passing that baton of faith. And for the rest of us, maybe today is a day where God rekindles that passion. Maybe we haven't had this on our heart in a while. And this is that day where we start praying again, we start proclaiming again, we start teaching again. We find a way to pass our baton of faith down 
to the next generation. I want to pray for us and then we're going to worship in song. I, I believe every time we get into the word of God, we need to respond to the word of God. You know, uh, whether it's uh, our own devotion time, family devotion time, time with the church, family, uh, we never want to engage the word of God, close it and just move on. We want to be able to sit there and, and respond to it. And so I'm going to give you a couple of different ways you can respond to this passage today. One is you could just do it through worship. We, we, I just walked through the gospel with us. Maybe during this time of response, you just want to sing your heart out, praising Jesus for that awesome gospel message, for the good news that there is hope for this nation, for this generation, praising him for your own salvation, your own testimony. Psalm 78 is a historical psalm about the goodness and faithfulness of God. So maybe you want to just sing your heart out, praising God for his goodness and faithfulness. But some of you, the response might look different. Some of you need to go grab your kids, your grandkids, and pray with them. You can do it in the seats. You can do it up here, wherever you want. Maybe it's been a while since y'all prayed together as a family on a Sunday morning. Go grab their hands. Go pray over them. Some of you have been ministering to some young people here at the church and you need to go pray for them. Maybe you know of a family who has a prodigal and you want to go join them in prayer for that prodigal. My hope would be that during this time that we're responding in prayer, maybe it's just you and the Lord saying, Lord, you got to use me. I'm not going to be here forever and I want to leave that legacy of faith. I want to pass that baton. Show me how to do that. Where do I start? How do we start getting these rhythms into our home for family discipleship? So whatever God has been laying on your heart, I'm going to pray. And then during this song of worship, let us find that way, the appropriate way to respond what God's been saying to you this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do praise you for your gospel, your good news, God. Thank you for saving us and loving us and knowing us. Thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us. You see us, you hear every prayer, Lord, and you are able to move mountains. God, we pray some moving mountain prayers this morning. We pray that you would draw those prodigals back to you. We pray that you would draw this next generation to you, that they would set their hope in you, that they would not chase after the things of the world, but they would pursue you, Lord. And I pray you'd use this congregation of God's people to passionately and consistently and intentionally with, and prayerfully and faithfully pass down our faith to the next generation that we would tell them who you are and what you've done. We tell them the gospel. We bring the word of God to them, Lord. We bring the word of God into our homes and put it in front of our kids and our grandkids, Lord. I also pray you'd raise up a generation of prayer warriors, men and women here that would say, I will fight for them in prayer. I will daily enter my prayer closet, fall on my face, and no one will pray for them as much as I am, Lord Jesus, because we believe that prayer is so powerful. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.